Welcome to Blue Fire's podcast, where we entertain you with tales of famous people you've never heard of. Each week, Steve, Lottie or Linda will guide you through the centuries to shine the spotlight once again on entertainers that history has forgotten. Join us for drama, interviews and the occasional chat over a bottle of wine as we discover that the topics of plague, poverty and overnight stardom are not unique to the 21st century. Today's special guest is actor and writer Patterson Joseph, possibly best known for his television work, which includes Peep Show, Law and Order UK, and most recently playing the ambitious politician Kamal Hadley in the BBC's Noughts and Crosses. Patterson also has an impressive track record of theatre work, including seasons at both the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre. He's also the author of Julius Caesar and Me, exploring Shakespeare's African play and Sancho, An Act of Remembrance, the solo play based on the life of Charles Ignatius Sancho, who is the subject of today's podcast. Patterson Joseph, um, who is going to chat to us today about a very famous person we haven't heard about, um, Charles Ignatius Sancho. Have I got that the right way around? You have. This man. There he is. Uh, oh, he stands uh, above my dining room table, reminding me all the time to get back in the office and write more stuff about him. <laughs> he looks like a real inspiration. Well, <laughs> yeah, 20 years of it, in fact, I've been at it. Have you really? Yeah, I started in 1999 or thereabouts, but we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you discover him? Okay, um, so let me do the uh, the glamorous version. Uh, I'm working with Tilda Swinton uh, on, glamorous. The beach, <laughs> on the beach in Thailand and we're playing cards um, and uh, not for money. <laughs> and she said to me, what would you like to be remembered for when you're when you die? <laughs> it's like, you know, not a casual question, but it's still the Swinton. Um, so I said, oh, and I immediately said this without even thinking about it. I said that I want to write a uh, play, a book, a TV series, a film about Black Britain before 1948 and my parents' generation, the Windrush generation. Because I'd heard so many stories about it, and I want young black people to feel part of British history and not just the negative um, slavery part. And she said, oh, great. Well, did you go do that? I can't even remember what she said she was going to do. I'm sure she's achieved it knowing her. But um, that's what started the ball rolling, and that would have been 1998. Started the ball rolling in me trying to do something about it. So in 99, I got myself a bunch of as I could possibly find on black British history. A lot of them are very good. Uh, but the one that really struck home was a book by a lady called Gretchen Gertziner, who's now a friend of mine, I'm happy to say, is a, uh, an African-American author and historian. And Gretchen wrote a book called Black England. And in Black England, I discovered Septimius Severus, um, Roman governor, uh, but governor of Britain, um, the second, I think, or third century, AD, third century, AD, I think. 
and he, second century, <laughs> from Libya. This man was from Libya and he was our governor for many, many years. And when he, Is he the, the guy who built the walls around the city of London? No, he was more um, protecting um, the north from the Scots. Uh-huh. Uh, then known as the, the Caledonians and the, uh-huh. and the Celts. But he was um, responsible for rebuilding Hadrian's Wall uh, and protecting, and almost giving up uh, invading the north and making it a separate, making it more of a separate country. Um, but when, so his, his story was in, amazing. And then John Blank, who was the trumpeter uh, in the court of Henry VIII, was also a fascinating story. And then I came to, um, you know, the 18th century, and there's this portrait. And the portrait, as uh, you know, you've seen from what I've just shown you, is a, a really striking, because it's a black man. It's 1768, it's Gainsborough, and he's painted him in Bath in 100 minutes, and he's painted him beautifully. His skin, even though it's a dark portrait, and obviously it's aged with years, his face is glowing. I mean, really glowing. And his waistcoat, which is deep and red and rich and with a sort of gold braiding, is sumptuous. And so this man has been painted with his hand lazily in his waistcoat as a sort of man of leisure when he was a valet valet to the Duke of Montague. So I was fascinated by him just by the portrait. And then after I investigated his life, that was it. I was sold and have been for the last 20 years. Just looking at that portrait, he looks so dignified as well, doesn't he? Yeah, yes. doesn't he? And yeah. he has, has got a twinkle in his eye. He's got a little <laughs> smile. Yeah, he's got a little smile. I mean, what you could, argue, you could argue, what did he have to smile about? But I think the fact that he was having his portrait painted by the greatest that, that, that had ever lived by that, at that point would have given him a real sense of where he'd come from. Because remember... Uh, well, not if you remember, but if you don't know, he was born on a slave ship, as far as we know, in 1729. His parents died very young. He was sent from Colombia, where he was living, at three years old to live with three spinsters in Greenwich. You don't know who they are. Some people say it might be the Leg sisters, L-E-double-G-E, but their dates aren't right. Um, and he was brought up as a little pet, like a lot of those 18th century, 19th century even kids and before Black kids were used as pets in portraits, in drawing rooms, to look as if you had money. You had a little, you know, black. That was him. So they used to dress him up and... They dressed him up. They they would have made him uh, a sort of spectacle because he was also obviously quite witty, even though he couldn't read, because they wouldn't teach him how to read, because they felt, and a lot of people did at that time, they didn't spoil slaves if you taught them how to read ideas above their station ideas above their station ideas full stop ideas dangerous yes you don't want them having ideas um and so he ran away from home when he was about seven six or seven and he was found fortuitously in blackheath park by john duke of montague who was a very kindly man and who really was an advocate for black uh, intelligence, black freedom, and I know that sounds strange to us now, but there was a time when people thought that the status quo was was correct, uh, and that black people didn't have intelligence, etc. So there he was, and he'd done it several times with other um, people, other black people, John Duke of Montague. So he took him up, and he basically sent him home, of course, but gave him books secretly. So he was a bit of an autodidact in that he learnt a lot while he was still with the ladies, he ended up working for the, the Montague family for most of his life, in fact, apart from a period 
that my novel really deals with, uh, the new novel that I've just written, deals with that period of his life that we know nothing about. So it's a sort of uh, imaginary, an imaginary journey through Sancho's life up to the point which, where he becomes part of the Duke's household. So when he grows up, he is an accomplished musician by this point. He is a writer. He writes a, a book on the theory of music. He writes to the newspapers about art, about the American Revolution, about the French Revolution. He was a real monarchist, obviously. Well, um, so he would protect them, and he, he was very afraid of the French Revolution. But he got too fat and gouty, unfortunately, too overweight and gouty to be uh, the valet. So they gave him an annuity, um, which was a good sum at the time, but £30. Pounds, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it, it was, you know, a good a few uh, thousand, maybe 35000 Anyway, he puts a deposit down and buys a shop. He buys a shop, and the shop allows him to be a proprietor. And if you have property and you're male, very important that you be male, <laughs> but you have property, you can vote in 1774 and then 1780 when he did. So he becomes the first black man that we know on record to vote in an election in this country. And he dies like, the year that he votes the last time in 1780. Um, a rather extraordinary life, really. Brief, 51. Just 51. Yeah. It's, it, he certainly packed a lot in. Cause did, didn't he do some acting as well? He was friends with David Garrick. He was. See, our information about him is so sketchy and mainly comes from a guy called Joseph Jekyll, who was his, I suppose, a biographer, but really he wrote a preface to the letters. Sancho wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters and they were um, published in 1782, two years after he died, made a lot of money for his family. But Joseph Jekyll has this very brief, some say, you know, borderline racist um, kind of preface. I think we have to think contextually because he was a, obviously is an advocate. So what he's saying is what he thinks is what uh, what would what would cause the most sensation, but also would lead people to be a bit more anti-slavery. He sort of sensationalized his story. So we don't know all the facts are correct. But um, yeah, so he talks about this Jekyll. And what Jekyll says is this, he says, Sancho attempted a career upon the stage, but due to a speech defect, that, fa that career failed. Now, of course, in my play, <laughs> Sancho, an actor of remembrance, I talk about this moment and I address the audience and say, I could have been a very fine actor if it wasn't for my, um, well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's really obvious. And they, I can feel the audience going, well, come on, it's obvious why, I, you know, it's plain as the nose on your face. And it is because of my, and the audience sometimes go, skin? And I go, what? No, speech, speech impediment. And then I, I, as if I'm thinking about it, mm, maybe you're right about that. But <laughs> the, the idea that he owned, the only obstacle to his acting career was the fact that he had a little, you know, whatever the speech impediment was. In the play, I make it a little lisp, which is very mild. But I, I don't think that's the case. But he definitely did try. Mm, the thought is that perhaps Garrick auditioned him uh, or even set up a play because they would do that. They would do some plays on spec and see if people liked it. So that's a possibility. But that, again, we uh, can only imagine. He seems to have been a guy who would have tried anything. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, full of beans, really. He really was. I mean, he's probably affected me more than any character I've ever played, I suppose, because I've lived with him longer and I... I kind of created a version of him. Of course, it's my version. I don't own him. Everybody suddenly wants to do it, and people are trying to do sort of films and TV things where he appears. I'm very happy with his name getting out there. But the but the the thing about 
Sancho actually to say about his acting is that he is a man who is suffused with artistic sensibility at a time when black people were not really given full expression. So music was an avenue because there were musicians working in the theatres, Garrick and Mr. Foote, Samuel Foote at the Haymarket, were all using musicians. There were musicians in the court of uh, the kings. You know, they would have been since Henry VIII's time, sort of fashion. There were actors who were, who were black. Um, I would suspect bit parts, but there we are. Um, so his music, his acting, his writing are all, for me, indicators that he wanted to have a voice, an artistic voice. He wanted to be free to be able to express himself artistically. Because when you think about it, poverty and oppression really often leads to people just subsisting, just trying to get by. And art is the sort of province of the, the leisurely, the luxury. I can sit here and write. I mean, even myself, a working class background, immigrant uh, parent background, but I spend, you know, days just sitting, writing, contemplating. Re I couldn't do that if I was subsisting, if I was just living hand to mouth. So being a servant, being a slave, being black and being working class means that your whole life is geared around working. So having the time to paint and to draw and to sing and to dance is quite a rare thing and an act of freedom, in my opinion, which I think is why his output is so um, prolific. He wrote loads and loads of songs and mostly pop songs. They're, pop they're, songs? Yeah, they're pop songs. <laughs> they're jigs, they're reels, <clears throat> the odd uh, sort of ballad, but they're minuets. They're all dance numbers. I've heard some of the minuets. They're lovely. Aren't they yeah. sweet? Yeah, they really are. I was looking in the second novel to put a bit of his uh, the lyrics of one of his songs in there but could I find any lyrics apart from friendship which is much later than the period I'm writing and friendship source of joy which is a beautiful song everything else is um musical and uh a dance annotation so he'll say there'll be a piece of music I think it, one of them's called um Lady Montague's Reel perhaps but then he goes all round back again each gentleman turn his partner. Balance, which is a sort of bow, and rigadoon step. Nobody knows what that is. Balance and rigadoon step. So I sort of dance with the audience when I'm doing that. As, as a But those are his words. And he's got loads of songs where he goes, so the first couple go to the, the right, the second couple go to the left, the third couple goes down the centre, they turn, they balance, they swap partners. And he, this is what he does. So his, his mind was that sort of artistic performer mind and he was a sort of choreographer as well as a writer so there is i call it a sort of militant joy in this it's like despite everything i'm gonna write some dance in spite of it I, I love that and that's you hear so much today as well about the working class actors and people not actually getting a break and yes. no one's actually got and it's time time is our most precious commodity yes. and if you have to work you don't have time to create Absolutely true. There was a survey done by Radio 4, I think, a little while ago, so a report saying uh, that the majority of all literature that has been written in the last hundred years were 
demographically very narrow, um, as in people of a certain class. Yeah, and it's sad, isn't it? Because the, it's very the stories sad. don't get told then, by sort of word of mouth of family. But they're they're the richness of our country. So if we only get one demographic, even if it was, you know, we m- might admire that demographic. But if we only get one demographic telling stories, then that's not the n- picture of the nation. Why, in some ways, I delved into writing a novel, uh, Lottie, because I felt like I don't have a Oliver Twist version of Sancho in my head. I don't have a David Copperfield version, but yet his life is equivalent to theirs and is a real story. Mm. So I wrote the novel because I loved those books as a, as a young person reading them. I was immersed in them and uh, I believed in them and they have affected me. And I want that to happen for everybody so that when they look at the last 200 years of British history, they see it in colour. Do you know what I mean? And I'm not saying that as a kind of twee thing, but I want you to see the Indians who were here for hundreds of years, the Chinese. I want you to see the Irish and what they were up to. I want you to see the working class properly, not just observed from a distance, like Thackeray might, or like, you know, Fielding might. Observe from a distance, peripheral characters, comic characters often. I wanted, I wanted to show the colour of the United Kingdom, actually, um, from... 1707, when it was inaugurated, it has always been, and even before that, of course, Tudor, Tudor era, it was it has always been a multi-ethnic society, always. And people don't realise. No. Um, so it becomes, Lossie, to be honest, it's getting a bit political, but then it becomes, people become indignant about people rewriting, as they say, rewriting history. In fact, historians gathered together sort of against Miranda Kaufman and, and, uh, and the group of people that I... I sort of am involved in and support, and saying you're rewriting British history. Yes, <laughs> we are, because it needs to be. Yes, there's a reason for that. You there's know, there's so much has been left out. Yes. yes, yes. So let's let those voices that were not heard be heard, because then we get a richer picture of who we are, and it should hopefully make us all feel sort of less uh, antagonistic towards the stranger, because the stranger won't be so strange. As you'll realise, they have a long history. Mm. possibly even longer than your families you know if you find your family came you know they were huguenots and they came from france in the you know the, in the 18th century then you might not have been here as long as somebody whose relative is john blank you know who's been here since 1550 or so i haven't my ancestors were irish they came over in the 1900s very early wow. 1900s ah. wow wow yeah. There you're, you are. <laughs> you're a very uh, recent immigrant in some ways, you know, uh, in perspective. But, you know, if we all knew that, I mean, the Irish community really, as far as I know, and I need to do some more investigation, really looked after um, the black community in a way because there was an area of London called Seven Dials, still there, but it's, it's a bit she-she now. You know, it's a bit posh. Whereas back in the day, it was a no-go area. It was a slum. And the people who lived there, obviously the working class English, were Irish. And this is a no-go area. It means that the authorities wouldn't go in there. They wouldn't go do surveys, how many people are living in this house. They didn't know what the hell was going on in there. But the rumour is that um, runaway slaves, and they were legion. There were so many runaway slaves in, in London. Uh, and we know that because of the, well, the, adver- the advertisements, as they said, the advertisements, that they would put these fly posters on walls everywhere. And foreigners who'd come say... The city is covered. I'm sure they're exaggerating slightly, but they said the city is covered in fly posters for a runaway slave. Um, 
uh, young Negro, 17, Kofi, answers to the name uh, Mungo, seen uh, at Blackfriars, please report to the ships in uh, to Captain Froggett, who will give you one guinea reward. Or Jemima, the slave, walks with a limp, has a scar over her left eye, last seen. So, and so they, 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 where did they go? Where did they go? Because they had to go somewhere and they had to be safe enough not to be press ganged onto ships, you know, for having no job and having no master. So Seven Dials would have been the place to be. You can go in there and disappear. You can still work, scurry back in at night. You know, the authority didn't have police. You know, there wasn't an immigration service. So they could disappear. And the Irish and the Blacks were very linked, which is also why I believe the music would have been linked too. And I have a fair bit of music in there. In the, in the book that I've written. Um, because I've, I've always imagined these black frolics, black hops, as people have described them, <laughs> as these gatherings. And they would say they were playing their instruments and they'd say some of the instruments, but they wouldn't say all. And they'd say, and they were there with their, with their Negro women. I'm like, well, they might've been, but what if they, they would have been, but they, would, they were also married to whites. Lots of black people married to whites. So they would have been there too. And then there were the Irish. The Irish would have been there. And they'd love a bit of a Cayley. They certainly do. Africans love a bit of a Kaylee. There would have been Indian people there. So what have they been playing? So that music, which we don't know anything about because they weren't interested in it, the historians <laughs> of that demographic, they weren't interested in that cacophony. I want to recreate that. And I have, I think, in part in the book, this richness that we know nothing about. And it just, it should make us, it certainly makes me feel more confident when I walk down the street as a black person here. But it should make all of us feel more confident in the environment we're in because it's not much different to, you know, the 18th century to what Samuel Johnson would have known as he had a black, um, ostensibly, you know, a sort of servant, but he became his ward and became his heir. Samuel Johnson's um, man-servant, as it were, um, Francis Barber, was born in St Kitts and came over here when he was probably 11 or so. Um, and then went to sea, ran away, sort of ran away from home, wanted his independence like any teenage boy, and then came back and looked after Johnson to his death and given an annuity and married and lived up in Litchfield where Johnson was. So this richness, this wonderful richness is right, is sitting right there. And without it, we have a black and white picture of England. It's, it's, it might be in sepia sometimes when we, when we really delve, but actually yeah. it should be in colour. It should be in colour. We really should. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it's interesting that Seven Dials, where yeah. all that illicit stuff was going on, yeah. just round the corner from Drury Lane, where all, all the, the posh people would have been going to the theatre and the opera. But, you know, there was a sign on windows. Um, uh, an, Irish, an older Irish actor told me this when he came to this country. And I don't know if people know this, but there used to be signs on um, landladies, normally landladies, windows saying no... No, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Horrible. So you're walking past trying to get a, a place and you see this, no blacks. Okay. But <laughs> my friend John said, well, th what they actually used to say sometimes was, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, no actors. <laughs> you would have been stuffed, he said. But there is a, <laughs> to me, to me that, is, that is so hilarious that there is a kind of um, shadow history that we don't know anything about. It is rich, it's funny, it's cooperative. You know, like, like um, I'm sort of obsessed with it, I suppose, because we're such a divisive society at the moment. But that's because we don't know where we've come from and we certainly don't know where we're going after that. But I really do think that we don't know our history. We don't know it well enough and we're not interested 
in it enough. And it may be that if you add these flavours, people will, because they'll start to see the world a bit like their world, mm. as opposed to this is the way these people used to do stuff, and that's very different to mine, and I don't have any relation to it. Actually, it helps people see their world as, you know, ha having a long history rather than just, oh, it's only the 20th century we've had all these different ethnic groups here. Something that certainly... we. We always say when we're doing publicity for our, our little shows is that nothing ever changes. Yeah. So, you know, the theatres were closed during the plague yes. and they were closed again during the war and they're closed now for another reason. Yeah. You know, it's um, and it's the same with families and social history. You know, everyone has the same problems, you know, every family fights and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and you're right, you know, to actually be able to see all of it in colour properly be yeah. a wonderful thing so yeah. keep at it when's the novel out well that's the that's the sixty thousand dollar question it is hopefully going to be i want it to be out in 21 but it seems that these things take time um slow slowly grinding wheels but i do have a publisher who's interested and it's the publisher i wanted to go with so um i'm very happy uh all being well um it's quite a long novel um and uh only half his life. Uh, I'm calling it volume one. Um, uh, it's kind of daring. Of this. <laughs> but there we are. Um, but she, you know, I, I, I have, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like um, when the novel comes out, it will be the right time, but it's probably 22. Right, right. And and the, the, the play continues, I know. The play continues okay. regardless. Um, hopefully February, March 2021 at the Lyric Hammersmith Beautiful, beautiful theatre. And the main house, which is rather big, I suppose, for a, a, a monodrama, as they're calling it nowadays, um, rather big for a one-man show. But it's going to be distanced. So actually, we're probably in a, in a 500 or so seater theatre, probably only have 150 people in there. But it's going to be interesting. It's a very audience participatory sort of show. So I don't know. I won't be able to dance with anybody. Of course, I won't be able to pick anybody up and dance with them. Oh, wow. it's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the ladies will be crying. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I certainly um, might have to have a couple of ringers in the audience. Uh, a couple of ringers, you know, just to... We've never met before, have we, madam? No, dad. Oh, oh, no. Yes, it's been done before. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It has. And what do we call him? Do we call him Charles? Do we call him Ignatius? Oh, I think um, most people call him Sancho. And Aww. it's fair enough. But, of course, you know that he was surname Sancho but he was baptized Charles Ignatius by the supposedly by the Bishop of Cartagena in um, Colombia uh, but that shows a jackal again who knows that's true or not. it sounds very grand um, why a bishop would be baptizing a young black slave I don't know but there's also the possibility that he was of mixed heritage it's, um, it's a hard possibility because he's very dark skinned but he also has very um, his hair is quite light, as in it's not kinky, like properly tight curls. It's quite light curls. He could have been combing it out with a hot iron because he was a valet would have had to have learned hairdressing. But on the other hand, he might have been mixed heritage. I don't know. Um, it's uh, it's not a thing we're ever going to find out. Basically, he is not um, as straightforward as as, uh, as he would appear. We call him Sancho. He's called Sancho because the sisters who he went to live with thought he looked like the fat servant of Don Quixote um, in, uh, in, in Cervantes' uh, book, um, Sancho Panza. Uh, so they called him Sancho, but his actual name is Charles Ignatius, baptised by apparently a bishop in, in Colombia. And um, how do you 
you call him? What do you know him as? Um, uh, sometimes I'm cheeky and I call him Iggy. Um, That's and I, nice. I imagine that Anne, his, his beautiful wife, uh, calls him Iggy. But that's just me making it up. It might be really disrespectful. Um, I suspect he was called Charles for the most part, or Sancho. But, but most people would have addressed him as as Sancho, um, except they're super intimate, and then they call. I think they call him Charles. That's again, we don't know that. And you've obviously got a real connection to him. I mean, do you do you take him home with you after you've done the show? Or? You see where he lives. <laughs> he lives above my head. If I'm ever eating anything, he is. Uh, he is ubiquitous he's everywhere he is what i'm writing about he is often what i get interviewed about he is uh, my uh, twitter handle i mean everything about <laughs> sancho is sort of I mean, i've got another person who i want to do a, a book about and i wonder if i'll become as i don't think i will as obsessed with him he's a very different character to mine a guy called julius nereri who's the first president of tanzania uh, but Sancho's completely become me and I've become him. I even bought some red shoes at some point, red boots, which I think 10 years before I would never have dreamt of doing. But because Sancho was such a man about town, he liked dressing up. He didn't want to hide away. Yes, I'm a black man in town. And yes, I'm dressed finely. And I know you're going to insult me, but uh, I'm looking damn good, aren't I, while you do it? Um, and, and so I think I dress slightly more flamboyantly, but not now. <laughs> Nobody can see me. But um, I normally dress um, quite flamboyantly, and I think that's Sancho's effect. That's a nice thing. <laughs> so the um, I'm going to let you go in a minute. You'll be delighted to hear. Um, the, the, very pleasant, thank you very much. <laughs> you say the nicest things. Um, so I just want to make sure we know that it's the Lyric Hammersmith. Have you got a date yet? Yes, but it is tentative. So I will just I will just say the last week of February. And and something that I have to ask you because I ask everybody on this podcast is your fantasy dinner party. Okay, well I'd like to invite um, Sancho obviously and his wife. I really want to know about Anne. Women don't get much say in history. Uh, and if they write it themselves it's usually a diary or a journal and uh, and gets either lost or disrespected in some way. So Anne's story as a black woman, so obscure. The only thing we know about her is he loved her to the very end, adored her, spoke about her as his better half, his other half, his other soul, his best self. You know, I mean, he loves her to bits. That's who I'd want to invite. And then, uh, so those two, those two definitely sitting there. Obviously, Julius Nereri, because I'd like to find out how he how he managed to bring Tanzania from under, you know, the British colonial rule to, to the first African country and, and one of only two, I think, who chose an African language as their national language. He translated Julius Caesar, Merchant of Venice and Macbeth into Kiswahili to prove that it was good enough for the best of, of, of English literature. So I'd like to sit and chat with him about that. Uh, who else would I have? So that's four of us. No, that's a good one. Maybe just okay. those. Those for the time being. Oh, that, that's nice. It's small, small but select gathering. Yeah, I don't like huge gatherings anyway, so it'd be good. I can really interrogate them. That's Yeah, and uh, I'm sure they'd have quite a lot to say to each other as well. Yeah. Nyerere was Mandela's hero. The first thing he did, and in his first speech, I think, after getting out, he thanked him for all his help because the ANC in exile, their main... Their headquarters was in um, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And uh, he suffered for it, Nyerere. He was bombed. 
He was um, undermined, a lot of terrorism by the British intelligence, unfortunately, and American intelligence, thinking he was a communist or wanting to say he was a communist. So he, he that would just be, yeah, I would, I would love that as a dinner party. Small, but I can really get into it with him. Mm. Yeah, that, that would be great. Well, I should come a waitress for you so you can spend all your time with your guests. Yeah, you can be, you my, you can be my, <laughs> my fifth guest. There we are. You're really good at interviewing, so you can interview them. <laughs> oh dear. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Famous People You've Never Heard Of. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find us more easily and you'll never miss an episode. If you'd like to support our work, it's easy to do. Just go to www.patreon.com bluefiretheatre. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.